welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. I'm Jennifer Lee, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jason Silverman. Hey, Jason, how are you doing? I'm good, Jen. Halloween was was a big deal this year. The costumes they chose were, well, especially my oldest. So I, I think probably people seeing his costume, if they knew anything about what this costume was, might have thought it was a political statement, but it really wasn't. So he was a plague doctor. So back in the time of the Black Plague, there were these plague doctors who walked around and supposedly try to help people dealing with the plague, but really because of the Black Plague being the Black Plague, couldn't do that that well. Were they but they had mask? these outfits with yeah. these like bird beak shaped masks where the, the bird beak, the cone that was on the end of it, they used to stuff these like herb soaked uh, gauze and, and or cloths that, that were supposed to like ward off the plague for the doctor himself. And my son got the idea from a book that he had read where one of the bad guys was this plague doctor. And I, you know, Googled a picture of what a plague doctor was. And so he decided that's what he wanted to be for Halloween and had nothing to do with the pandemic that we've just been dealing with for the last two and a half years. But it was his choice. My youngest just went as like a soldier because he just likes the gear, like all any costume that has accessories he was excited about that. So this one came with, you know, a lot of accessories. So he was all about that. How about, how about your household? Well, you didn't tell me about your costume, so I'm missing out. I was not dressed up this year. I had, uh, a, I had an orange sweater. Um, does that count in any no, way? It does no. not count. So at work, I was a witch, but I was a happy witch, one that was planning on going to the Kentucky Derby. Oh, nice. Um, right. And then, yes. yeah, my little hat. And then for Halloween night, we went as a family in Descendants, the Disney movie. So my husband, Mark, was Hades. Okay. I was Maleficent. Oh, you know, okay. they, they had a kid together in the movie. Oh, wow. And then uh, my kids were Mal and Evie, two of the characters. Wow. You guys had it together, a theme. Like we, <laughs> we were- Every year? Yes. We, were, we did not <clears throat> have this whole together theme. Not at all. We've tried to do a theme every year. Wow. Good yeah, for you. Yeah, my husband and I love Halloween. We started dating on Halloween night. Okay. My bachelorette party was a Halloween-themed party. Yeah, we love Halloween. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> I'm really excited about today. We have talked about IBD before, including demographics, medications, importance of transition, and how to approach the patient and family as a whole. But today, we are going to be talking about diet. So there has been interest for a long time in using diet to help treat IBD. And today, we're going to talk about one such approach with some really interesting and promising recent data called Crohn's Disease Exclusion Diet, CDED. Yeah. And to talk about it, we invited Dr. Eitan Wine and... It's really great to be able to introduce him because not only is he a fantastic pediatric gastroenterologist and clinician scientist and researcher, but he's one of my colleagues and friends here at the University of Alberta. In fact, when I first started in my current job, him and I shared an office. 
Dr. Wine did his medical and pediatric training in Israel, but then completed a pediatric GI fellowship at SickKids in Toronto. He did a PhD in cellular microbiology at the University of Toronto, and his clinical and research interests are all around pediatric IBD, and his lab focuses on the involvement of intestinal bacteria and nutrition in intestinal inflammation. And uh, really, that lends itself to translational bench-to-bedside research. He is the absolute perfect person to have on this episode and talk about the CDED diet. And he's been uh, involved in a lot of the pediatric research around the use of that diet in kids with IBD. But wait, if we say CDED diet, that's basically diet, diet. Just just (laughs) Just can't think of the word diet. CDED. (laughs) CDED, period. No diet afterwards. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So looking forward to learning more about CDED and the role it may play in the treatment of Crohn's disease in children. On to the the show. show. Dr. Wine. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us on this great episode of Bowel Sounds. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very excited about it. (laughs) And for listeners uh, who don't know this, this is the first opportunity that I have had to record an episode of Bell Sounds where I'm in the same room as the guest in my office. And it's Jen who is remote and joining us by Zoom. It's usually the other way around that Jen or Peter has a guest in Nationwide uh, or travel to someone else. And, and now the situation's reversed. So I feel do very feel special. lonely over here. Sorry. <laughs> But, but you're, <laughs> on, okay. you're up on the big screen. We can see you very clearly. So it does feel like you're in the room. Hi. <laughs> anyway, so we'll, we'll get started with what some people to be, uh, find to be the, the hardest question, but maybe you won't. How would you describe yourself in one sentence? I consider myself a very lucky person in many ways, but mostly when it relates to work, because I get to do a lot of things that I really like. Although sometimes maybe I like to do too many things, I guess. I, I like the lucky the lucky guy angle. It's very positive. Yeah, for sure. And I wonder if you could tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you've watched, read, or listened to that you recommend. Um, so I'm reading now, and I just over the last week actually read quite a bit of Homo Deus. So A Brief History of Tomorrow. It's a second book by Yuval Noah Harari. And... It's incredible, very thought-provoking, a little bit scary, um, just because, you know, the change is is so robust and sudden and very, very stimulating and, and, you know, really gets you thinking. And it's been a while since I've read a book that that got me thinking so much. So highly recommended. It's a good tip. I have, I actually have that. And there's another one after Homo Deus that... Like I, something like 20 ideas about the 21st century. Something, I don't remember the numbers yeah. exactly. My wife read that already and she's like, finish the second one so you can get to the third one. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely I, I definitely have to uh, get back on, on reading that book. It's been on my to-read list for a while. Anyway, so we really wanted to talk about the, the Crohn's disease exclusion diet. But before we get there, yeah. maybe we can set the context a little by talking about the role of nutritional therapy in the treatment of Crohn's disease more broadly. What has been your experience with nutritional therapy and and what has that traditionally looked like? So exclusive enteral nutrition is probably, you know, the nutritional therapy that we're all most aware of and 
as a trainee. So I grew up in Israel. I did medical school and pediatrics there. That's where I was first exposed. And then I arrived in Toronto in 2004 for my fellowship. And both of those settings, EN was really quite strong during my training. So that's where I was first exposed to it. And and I think, you know, like when you're growing up as a trainee, you just kind of accept, oh, you know, it's this is what we do. Um, it was only later on that I started to think, well, really, how does that work? Why does that work? And and I was kind of armed with the experience I had in literature saying that it does. So, you know, when you start from that point of view, then I think uh, it, it really is a very different scenario than, you know, the way many of us encounter new therapies or or think about them. So it was kind of like always there for me for, for Crohn's disease. And it was the, the first option, and it still is, I think. Uh, but you know, at the same time, uh, with that experience, there certainly was evolution. And that's, I guess, what we'll talk about a lot today. Uh, but certainly, I've seen it succeed in many, many cases for over two decades now. Can you just outline when we say exclusive enteral nutrition, yeah. what what does that actually look like from a practical point of view? So it doesn't look very pretty, I have to say, for the patients. And And we, a few years ago, our team here, decided that, you know, we should experience what it's like. So for 24 hours, we said we're, we're going to follow the diet that we're recommending, which generally speaking is not a bad idea, although I guess it depends on the treatment. <laughs> um, and really what it involves is, is eliminating all normal foods and just sticking to a liquid diet. Um, this would be a complete diet formula. The one that we use most frequently here is Enter Plus. Um, but different parts of the world, they'll, they'll have different options, different preferences. These are polymeric diets, which don't taste too bad. But I think that if that's all you're consuming, that's where the problem happens, right? It's very monotonous. It doesn't feel like food. So despite the fact that it's kind of like a milkshake, you know, it's sweet, it's tasty. Kids like it at the beginning. There's a bit of an aftertaste, but it is hard to do, especially because we're asking our patients to do it not for 24 hours, but for six to eight weeks. And we usually try and aim for, for eight weeks. Uh, besides drinking the formulas, you are allowed to drink as much water as you want, which usually is not something that kids are happy to hear. We locally and many others in the world do kind of allow minor cheats, such as a couple of hard candies, maybe once or twice a day, but there is some variability and there isn't a lot of research on that, but we think that the main important concept is being exclusive and, you know, just that as your diet, because if you do start to cheat, it just doesn't work. Expanding upon that, how effective is this exclusive enteral nutrition in the treatment of Crohn's disease? And does it vary by disease severity or phenotype? Yeah. So, the ideal patient would be a child, and we might talk about the difference between children and adults, but certainly the experience has been mostly in children with mild to moderate Crohn disease without specific complications such as perianal disease or, you know, if you have severe stricturing disease, it actually helps because it's a liquid diet. But I think that overall, you know, with the more severe cases, the success will be a bit lower. And most studies, and, and uh, there, are, there are a few meta-analyses out there, do talk about an 80 to 85% remission rate at eight weeks, which is really quite extraordinary. So it's as, at least as good as steroids are, but probably what's 
even more important to me is that, you know, in the few studies that have looked at mucosal healing, then you can achieve mucosal healing with EEN, not as fast as biologics, for example, but it certainly happens. And you don't get that with steroids. And of course, the fact that, you know, there are really no side effects except for the, you know, I guess the side effect of the soul of the children who cannot eat. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Um, so it isn't easy to do, but, you know, if you are able to do it, then it's very successful. And you mentioned, you know, differentiating pediatrics and adults, and you specifically called out a child. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. So, you know, this is where the nuances um, come in, because at the end of the day, you know, when we're facing a family in clinic or after endoscopy and we have to come up with the initial therapy, we will make a decision at that point about how good of a candidate that the patient will be. I find that the most, the highest success for EN is in pre-adolescent children. Um, more in boys than girls has been my experience, although I don't think there's been a lot of literature in that. Some of it is because, you know, they, they seem to be less caring about, you know, food is important for them, but they want to feel well, they want to go out and play, and it does allow them to do that quite, quite quickly. Um, teenagers... I mean, you need buy-in from any patient, but certainly from teenagers, it's a bit more difficult to get the buy-in once eating becomes more of a social factor, then, then it's a big price to pay for sure. And I think that in adults, even more so, you know, we value food as such an important part of who we are and what we do. And that's probably the reason why this has not been attempted in adults all that much. And when it was, it wasn't very successful. However, there are a few exceptions to that. And I think over the last two or three years, we're seeing more and more studies come out of the UK and Israel and a few other countries where EN is being used in adults as well. And when it's used by the multidisciplinary team, then the success rates are probably quite similar. So it really is a lot more about giving the right support, selecting the right patients, which is cheating, I guess, but, but it is important, right? You know, I think the most frustrating thing is to ask someone to do something difficult when you know they're not going to succeed. So we try, we definitely try and avoid that. And then the other exception might be more kind of culturally or geographically. So in Japan for many years, they have been using EN most more in the post-surgical setting with, with high success. And I think that, you know, you'll find a lot of variation depending on how this develops in different countries. It's hard to imagine why it would be so different in terms of actual biologic impact just based on age. We've tried to come up with some ideas of why it might be more age specific and, you know, the microbiome might have a role there and, and other co-factors that, you know, adults may have. But, but really, I agree with you, you know, essentially it should work in adults. There has been a change in the adult setting. And I think over the last three to four years, Probably with the emergence of CDD, which I think does offer a different option that is more palatable, so to speak, to, to adults as well, and research that's coming out around that, then certainly there there is more interest in some European countries. And I think that there is a culture forming around that. So it is encouraging to see patients, they come to me and they say, why don't you give me nutritional therapy? And I don't even know how to do it. But now they do. So, you know, sometimes it does come from the patients, which I think is very cool. That is great to hear. Where I trained a lot of the patients, we talked to them about exclusive enteral nutrition, but 
they hear about what that means. And I haven't had a lot of patients actually like commit to doing that. And so I want to talk a little bit more about diet and Crohn's disease in general, both in terms of inducing and maintaining remission. And there are a lot of different diets, right? The specific carbohydrate diet, the Mediterranean diet, plant-based diets, and of course, CDED, which is the main topic of our episode today. So what would you say has motivated this interest and what is the underlying physiologic basis for why diet may be a valid approach? I mean, that's a great question. I, I think what we're seeing over the last five to 10 years is that society is changing. This depends, of course, where you are. And, and I think, you know, probably many of us are exposed to this more than the average person because we're gastroenterologists, but also because, you know, we we probably speak to many of our friends who are interested in healthy lifestyle and, you know, physical activity. And, and, and that's where a lot of this fits in. There's a lot more interest from the public and awareness. And that's a good thing. And the demand for dietary therapies comes from the patients. So it's usually the first question that I get once, you know, they start asking, well, what is this Crohn's disease you talk of? Uh, why does it happen? Is this because of diet? So, you know, we've been hearing that for years and kind of dismissing it because, oh, it's more complicated than that. It's immune system and cytokines. But we are learning more about the role of the diet. And I will talk a little bit about the pathogenesis where, you know, that's where my interest in the diet really emerged from beyond being a clinician. Uh, but together with that, you know, there have been wonderful research opportunities and projects out there. And people have come up with some great ideas with variable success, uh, variable science for sure. So, you know, I think that that's where we're still lagging. And as I've been doing diet-based studies for the last few years, it's extremely difficult to design a good diet study. So the science is not because people are being lazy or anything like that. It's, it's extremely difficult to do. And, and, you know, we might get a chance to talk about that a bit more, but certainly the diets that you mentioned are around. And even if we as physicians are not endorsing them, our patients are trying them because they connect with each other. They, there are websites out there. They try different things. So I think, you know, sitting there and kind of saying, well, I don't know how to do diet. I'm going to ignore it is probably a mistake because then you're just not aware. You know, it's like complementary medicine. Some of these are bioactive um, medications that our patients are taking that we definitely have to ask and, and know about. And diet is just, I mean, it's the gut, right? Diet has to have an effect. And then, you know, the point about causation and, and the role of diet in the pathogenesis. Obviously, I would never claim that this is a response to a bad diet or anything like that. A lot of IBD patients are quite offended by the fact that someone suggests that, you know, oh, it's just the food that you're eating or the fact that you're not fit or your weight is wrong or your lifestyle. It's not that simple. But we do have good epi epidemiologic and basic data showing that, that diet and certain components really have a major impact on the development of disease and therefore can be part of the solution. And that's where CDD, for example, fits in. Okay. So you, you talked about how... You know, we're certainly not at a stage where we could or would say Crohn disease developed because of diet or because of an inappropriate diet, a typical Western diet, a not nutritious diet, whatever the case may be. But you, we are still learning about which components of diet may play a role in 
maybe reversing some of the the Crohn's disease evolution process. So maybe we can just take CDD as the prototype and and talk about you know one first of all what does CDD diet look like and what was the rationale behind what's included and excluded from the diet? Yeah, so it really does build on some of the things that I I spoke about and I think really the origin of this was going back to EEN. So how and why does EEN work? And, you know, like we, we like asking questions because it gives us good ideas for different science projects, etc. And there, there has been a lot of discussion around that. And probably about 15 years ago, there, there was a paper by Johnston that came out and compared the standard EEN to a partial enteral nutrition. So 50% of calories coming from a formula and 50% from food. And there was a huge delta between the two. And I think that really helped answer the question of, is it something that the formula is giving that that's making the effect? Or is it the fact that you're removing all foods that is giving us that effect? And and the answer is the latter. So certainly, you know, the exclusion is, is what makes it happen. And the way we explain it now is that the food that we eat does have different features that could potentially harm the gut, especially if the gut is already injured, right? So part of it is chemical and, you know, like we have good data on emulsifiers, for example, and other preservatives that that will damage the cell layers, the mucus layer, and, and cause some of those effects. Other parts of it are um, the actual physical, physical features of food. So, you know, being solid and, and having potentially rough parts to it. That's why, you know, for many years, people with diverticulitis, for example, were scared about eating popcorn, right? Because the, the hard nuts or pieces might get stuck, might injure, might scrape. And there may be something to that, although I think the evidence is quite poor. And then the third component could be the immune stimulation. So, you know, when we eat proteins, for example, those are antigens that will never see our immune system. But if you have a broken down gut, they might. And therefore, you know, if we give broken down simplified food, that's probably part of the effect. However, when you understand a bit what these formulas are, they're not, they're polymeric. So they still have the ability to stimulate an immune response. I don't think it's a perfect explanation. That's where the basic science fits in, just to try and see which specific foods could have in in vitro settings or in animal settings, because it's very difficult to do this in humans, could have potentially initiated or triggered some of the immune responses that we're seeing in in IBD. So that's kind of the working uh, hypothesis now for how and why EN works. But then how how did that sort of lead to the CDD? diet development and and again which which foods were included excluded etc yeah so so this is really um the key to the development of cdd on the one hand we know that en works but on the other hand we don't need research to show us to tell us that that patients don't like it Uh, but we did do a survey a few years ago across the world and the number one and two barriers for taking en were low adherence due to the monotony and due to the palatability. So we talked about that. It's very difficult to do. So uh, the person who really pioneered a lot of this uh, um, over many years and and came up with some of the ideas was Ari Levine in Israel. But it's developed since then um, and been tested in many different settings. And the idea was to provide a food-based diet that still kept the same principles of excluding 
not just random foods, but the foods that we had the greatest basis to think that could potentially be causing the harm. So on that list, and you know, this this is a bit arbitrary because it just depends on the data that are out there and what's been studied, but uh, certainly animal fats um, is high on the list. Probably anything that's processed, so that that will include a lot of the food additives, and that's where you know fresh is very a very important part of the CDD. Um, gluten was removed, and this is very different mechanisms than celiac, but there are some animal studies sh showing potential harm uh, at different levels. And uh, dairy products were removed as well, also because of the fat, but the protein as well seems to be harmful in that setting. And this list went on to develop more and more. And uh, uh, we summarized some of this in a review paper that was published in Gut in 2018. But based on that, the list of foods that we wanted to exclude came up. And then a very talented dietitian uh, in Israel kind of worked on finding, well, which foods can we include, which will still give a complete diet and offer that. And I'll explain a bit what the diet actually looks like now. So every food item can be categorized into three different categories. The first one, which we did originally call mandatory, but I think we were kind of trying to keep away from that term. But really, this is kind of your basic food would would be foods that a lot of us eat. So eggs, um, lean chicken, so usually chicken breast, potatoes, bananas, apple, and that's kind of your basic nutrition on a daily basis. And then there is a list of allowed foods that you can add on um, with no limitation in most cases. And this will include different fruits and vegetables. Rice, for example, we think is very neutral in that setting. And probably most importantly is the disallowed foods or the excluded foods. So anything that's been processed, anything that's kind of undergone any chemical change, uh, the ones that I mentioned earlier on. And the education for the patients really is around learning what this list is. And together with that, we have quite a few resources now to make it easier for families. We have recipes and, and different tricks of how you might combine this. Now, very important for the CDD, at least at, at its initial development, having formula was felt to be still an important part of it for two reasons. So I think, first of all, it is a complete food and it does give everything that we need. So, you know, if we're a bit worried that our patient may not get enough protein because they don't like, they don't like eggs and, you know, there isn't a lot of protein in the diet otherwise, then at least we have that safety of, of them getting the basic food. But I think a lot of it was also familiarity to us as the physicians and others where, you know, at least we know that they're getting this. And on the research side, it made it a little bit easier. I'll talk about the randomized control trial when we compare the two different groups. So initially for the first six weeks, 50% of your calories are coming from a formula and the other 50% from the foods that I noted. There's a lot of teaching around that. So you definitely need a dietitian involved in, in monitoring this and, and educating. The following six weeks, so it's a 12-week diet, the classic CDD, you go down on the formula to 25% and there are more foods that are allowed. So in the first, we call it phase one, you're allowed fish once a week, you're allowed more fish later on, you're now allowed meat once a week and, and it kind of becomes easier over time, which is also an important incentive. And then later we'll talk about potential maintenance, et cetera, but that's kind of the heart of the CDD as it was published in the gastro paper in 2019. Can I ask a follow-up because you talked a lot about emulsifiers but I didn't hear you mention anything about organic or pesticides or that kind of yeah. thing. Is that something that went into this process? 
So organic comes up a lot, and I have to be careful about my wording around this because I I think that you know like organic is a huge market, and in many cases, a lot of people kind of think that organic means healthier or better. I I don't think that's necessarily the case. What organic really means is a certain standard of you know depending on the crop or the um, if it's meat that you're eating. Uh, the way they're they're being treated, etc., and doesn't always have to correlate necessarily with with health. Pesticides, certainly, you know, any chemical that's added to food does have an impact. Our biggest problem is that none of these are regulated in a way that we can really clearly define. So, in the principles, you know, we say that everything that you can grow on your own, obviously, that doesn't happen in most families, or you can buy from someone who grew on their own is going to be better. Right. So, you know, like many years ago, the 100 mile diet came up as kind of, you know, like this ideal solution. And these are all very important principles, but we have to be pragmatic. Right. We have to find something that is accessible, affordable. And this is where we kind of have to find a hierarchy for what's most important for us. And and I think that, you know, like I, I did mention the emulsifiers just because we have some of the best science on how that works and the fact that it is harmful. But uh, there probably are many other features. And, you know, I, I see this diet as an important step in our understanding. But I'm hoping that, you know, as there's more research, we'll have better data and we'll have a bit more of an understanding of what foods can we really include. And one thing I'm very interested in is, is personalization of diet. And on a very different angle where we've now started a, a big project looking at, at personalization of fiber diet. So, you know, there, there's a lot more detail that will go into this, but that's kind of the best answer I can come up with to your interesting question. Thanks, Jen. So, I like to ask the tough one. So, um, you mentioned trying the exclusive enteral nutrition uh, diet. Do, have you tried CDED yourself? <laughs> so, I have, but not religiously. You know, I, you know I'll, I'll say that certainly I, I don't follow this as my diet. And I think it's probably a healthy diet, but it is difficult to do still. My diet has changed over the last decade as I've been learning more about this, but I am following some of the principles. And I think that, you know, a lot of people as they're becoming more aware, so, you know, fast food, highly processed foods, we really need to reduce. And that's what I practice myself, but completely eliminating. Sure, you know, I've done it for a short while just to kind of experience and see what some of the recipes are like, but I haven't followed it the way um, my patients are. And, and, and I probably should try experience it a bit more. I, I think that's a very valid point. And um, I've also been trying to reduce the number of processed foods and things like that. When you think about using the CDED, which I don't think we've officially come out and said is the Crohn's disease exclusion diet, what yes. is the ideal patient population for this diet? So the ideal patient that we have data on from the randomized control trial I mentioned was the patient I described for EN. And the reason that we know that is because when the inclusion and exclusion criteria were, were designed... We wanted the classic um, patient with who, you know, we, we know EN will work for. A couple of additional points there. Number one is that patients with predominantly distal colonic disease, just from the anecdotal experience before the RCT, they did not seem to respond as well. So they, they were excluded. Uh, but otherwise, you know, anyone with mild to moderate disease, 
Another important point is that if you have objective evidence of inflammation, so elevated calprotectin or, or, or CRP, ESR, you are more likely to respond to the diet. And that's probably just to eliminate cases where functional components might be more relevant to that. But otherwise, you know, those are the ideal patients. But really, when I'm in clinic now, so outside of inclusion exclusion criteria of a study, to me, the most important factor is, do I feel that they have enough motivation, interest, ability, time, so it is more time consuming. And one thing we can't ignore is that, you know, that it does cost more to buy fresh ingredients. So there is a cost factor to it. So I just have a very open and frank discussion with the family and and I try and, and ask them, you know, is this something that you would consider? I describe the pluses and the minuses compared to steroids, for example, or whatever other therapy we're, we're considering. And this is where I feel that I'm improving over time with that because I I have more and more experience on cases where I thought it was going to work, but it didn't, but it didn't. Why didn't it work? How can we do this better? And this is, again, where the team fits in very well. So we have two IBD dietitians here who have seen hundreds of patients where this has been discussed and 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 they they have a very good sense of whether it's going to succeed or not. So you've talked a little bit or you've at least mentioned the uh, the original RCT study on the Crohn's disease exclusion diet. Um, what results have you seen so far with the use of the diet and have you made any modifications to the diet itself or how it's used based on the results? So I'll give a very quick synopsis of the results of that study. Uh, and so there were about 70 patients included that were randomized either to six weeks of EN or six weeks of phase one CDD and then six weeks of phase two. In the second six weeks, if you were on the EN, you went on a normal diet, but with 25% formula. And they were given some general advice on, you know, healthy diet, but but they were not given a specific diet to follow. At six weeks, our primary outcome was looking at tolerance of the diet. And um, there was certainly much better tolerance to the CDD than the EN. It was about 75% tolerated the EN versus 97.5% that tolerated CDD. And all of the clinical parameters were were the same between the groups with maybe, you know, like a non-statistical significance advantage for some of them with CDD, but certainly, you know, they, they were comparable. At 12 weeks, we saw clear separation. And these were secondary outcomes where when you went back on a diet, then your symptoms came back, your calprotectin went up. And um, certainly those patients were more likely to need additional therapies. Whereas if you stayed on phase two, then your remission remained very high. A very important point is that there was a strong connection between adherence and success of the diet. And I think that's a really important point. We know that if you're on a diet, even during the first few days, you're more likely to remain on it because you'll see the benefits. And we published a follow-up study showing that your response at three weeks is an excellent predictor for your response at six and 12 weeks. So the initial response, like probably most therapies that we know, is a best, is one of the best indicators of success. Now, the second half of your question is, you know, how has this evolved over time? So we are um, just finishing up a follow-up study called the Modified EN Protocol, where we are looking at more severe cases. And in those cases, we actually start with two weeks of EN 
and then it's followed by phase one and phase two CDD for the following six and then another six weeks. We also have a maintenance diet for another 12 weeks that is quite a bit easier to do. And there you're allowed like a weekend cheat day where you can, within reason, pretty much eat what you want and, and the allowed foods kind of expand. Um, so we don't have the data yet. I, I hope we will within the next few weeks. But clinically, I've been doing that as well. More severe cases, I usually start the EN just because I feel that, you know, this is what we've been doing for many, many years. I have more confidence in that, which is natural. But it also allows me to sell the CDD in a much easier way because, you know, you're on EN now. Let's just make it through week two and then we will give you food. And, and, and the pickup is actually quite good with that. So a bit sneaky on my side. I didn't make it up. I use this on patients who are going on biologics, for example, if I need to, pes to press the reset button and get them into remission quickly or for waiting for a biologic to be approved. Um, certainly, I've had very severe cases where they get everything, including CDD or EEN, depending on their on their symptoms which I think is, is better than just giving them the biologic loan. So uh, it's very patient dependent, but it is penetrating into other scenarios that I didn't use it in the past. Okay. And can I just follow up? You mentioned tacking on a period of EEN for patients that are more severe. Are there patients for whom you just start with CDED without formula? Yeah. So there is now a study that was published in adults, came out late last year, where they did compare the, the CDD that I described to you with the CDD without formula. And both were, were successful. The, the numbers were a little bit lower. They were in the 60s and 70s, but still, you know, high remission rates. Um, and there was not a statistical difference between the two groups, but you know, it's just one study. There was a little bit of a trend where with the formula, the success might have been a bit higher, but I think it certainly is an option. And and we are quite flexible about that point. We're not flexible about allowing foods that we think you shouldn't be eating. But if patients are saying, you know, I'm having a lot of trouble with, with uh, the formula, or on the other hand, you know, I, I just can't eat two potatoes a day, we are gaining more experience in finding different nuances and, and solutions. And that's where, again, experience does does help. You know, you talk a little bit about how the microbiome may be playing a role. Have you done any studies where you compare the microbiome before starting CDED and then what happens at a physiologic level after they've been on this diet? Yeah. And, and I mean, microbiome is, is a very big passion of mine. And that's one of the reasons that I gained interest in, in uh, nutrition on the research side. Uh, for the, in the gastro paper, we did have a couple figures on the microbiome, but since then there've been a few additional papers that have either come out or are now, actually there's one that I have to review now. Johan van Limbergen, who was in Halifax and currently is in Amsterdam, has done a lot of this work as, as one of the partners on the CDD. And essentially what we found for the patients included in the study is that there was a similar reduction in certain uh, microbial taxa that like proteobacteria, for example, with both diets during the first six weeks. But then those who went back on a regular diet, those microbes appeared again, whereas they remained suppressed 
when you were on CDD. That's just one example. There are other microbial taxa that expanded in that setting and, and seemed to thrive. Diversity is a bit of a problem. Many of us, when we think about microbiome, we, we you know, because diversity can be just one number, it's more convenient for us to think about that. But exclusive enteral nutrition actually reduces diversity just because it's a monotonous diet and our microbes are fed off what we eat. It just goes to show that, you know, it's a much more complex area than, than we thought. So the current work is now trying to understand the metabolic pathways that might change and, and which specific microbes might be affected by this, because we think the microbes are central to the nutritional pathogenesis in IBD and therefore could be part of the solution, either by being a marker or targeting them or even combining this with bacterial therapy. You'll still hear about this a lot, but, but it's in very early stages. I, I joke with uh, some of the trainees that the word microbiome is the GI conference drinking game, and it has been for the last you know, 10, 15 years and probably will continue. Yeah, probably. <laughs> we talk about the results that you've seen so far with the CDED uh, studies. What were the results of the study in terms of uh, outcomes? So oh, the in remission terms of rate remission and, rates. Yeah, so the, the remission rates were around 80% at six weeks for, for both groups. And I mean, it's quite a dramatic reduction in the CRP improvement in albumin. What was a little bit disappointing was the fecal calprotectin. It came down, and I think the mean was about 3,000 down to 1,500. Uh, and, you know, like, a, actually, the reviewers were quite troubled about that. You know, well, you haven't really normalized it. But first of all, if you look at other medications, such as biologics, it does take time for the calprotectin to come down. Um, there have been only a couple studies that have compared the reduction in calprotectin between biologics and, and exclusive enteral nutrition. We know it's a bit slower, but, you know, after a few months, it seems to, to, to come down quite similarly. So I think, you know, for both CDD and EN, we are seeing a similar uh, improvement in markers of mucosal healing. In the adult study, they did do endoscopy and they did show mucosal healing with the diet. So I should mention that, but in pediatrics, uh, for obvious reasons, we, we have not done endoscopies, a uh, hard outcome. Okay. That's really good to hear though, that because, you know, earlier you had mentioned about how exclusive enteral nutrition is far superior to partial enteral nutrition yes. and the approach of partial enteral nutrition really didn't work. And here you're describing what is, what is effectively partially partial enteral nutrition, with the diet component being a modified diet, having similar results. So, so that's encouraging that, you know, people can eat some food and still get the results that we were looking for with EEN. As long as it's the right food they're eating. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Um, so maybe carrying on your personal practice in terms of using CDD, where does this go from here on out? Like, where does this go next? Is there a role for a diet similar to CDED for our patients with ulcerative colitis, for example? Or will we be able to modify CDED uh, to be more sustainable over the long run? Yeah. UCED, CDED. <laughs> we'll have so, to think of a cool name for it. Yeah, well, there is a UCED um, diet that can't trademark it, Jen. No, <laughs> and I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't as involved in, in this, but there was a paper just published in adults, and Dr. Marshak from Israel was the senior author on that paper, where they looked at in patients with ulcerative colitis, giving I think there were three groups there, 
the first arm was fecal microbial transplantation alone. The second one was using the microbial transplant with preconditioning of both the donor and the patient to kind of improve their gut microbes in a way that will be more friendly. And the third one was the UC diet alone. And the numbers were quite small. I think it was about 12 per group. But actually, the diet alone was the most successful group, which which was not what they were expecting. So that's very, very early, right? You know, it was a well-designed study, but the numbers were, were quite small. And, and what I can say from the science behind UC is that we expect the diet would be a bit different. So uh, probably, you know, sulfate-producing bacteria are more central to pathogenesis and ulcerative colitis. So it's a lower protein diet that, that probably needs to be practiced in that setting, which does raise additional challenges because we still want it to be balanced. But uh, again, I haven't been involved in personally in, in developing this diet, but I, I think that there will be similar diets coming out. The colon is a very different environment. I mentioned earlier on that, that CDD is prob probably not ideal for predominantly colonic disease. And part of that may be explained by, you know, the, the colonic microbes, fermentation, just very different processes there. Uh, the UC diet that I saw just published um, did have a big emphasis on, on uh, uh, fruit as a source and, and certain fibers, which in Crohn's disease, you know, we know fiber is important, but sometimes we're a bit more careful about that, at least initially, just because if they have structuring disease, that might be a challenge. So this is very early stages. Uh, I do, you know, I do think that as time goes by, there's some great work being done by really pure science groups and understanding microbes as markers, interaction of microbes with nutrition and, and coming up with, with uh, predictors for response to different treatments, including dietary. So, you know, in the, in the future of personalized medicine, I do see personalized diets as, as being uh, a big hit. But in the meanwhile, we're, we're much more low tech with what we can do. For anyone who hasn't listened to the episode, we recently released one with Dr. Maria Mascarenas on culinary medicine mm -hmm. out of CHOP. And I think that this conversation is just reminding me a little bit of that and that you know, we're really treating the person as a whole, not just providing a treatment for that one specific disease, if that makes sense. I, we have to I find a treatment agree. for them that will yeah. work. And, you know, like the, the holistic approach, I think a lot of us believe in it and preach for it, but it's not, not always easy to do. It's much quicker to just write a prescription for prednisone than it is to have these discussions with, with our patients. And, you know, like sometimes, like I've certainly had patients where I, I just... I knew I needed to do more about having this discussion explaining, but I just didn't have the time, right? So reality is sometimes not always going to be in, in favor. That's where, again, you know, if you have an, an experienced team that can take some of that burden off you, it is an investment, but it's very, very much worth it. But I completely agree. And, you know, I think that obviously, you know, the emotional side is very important for any intestinal disease. We all know that. Um, but food, you know, like we're gastroenterologists. We have to talk about food. Absolutely. Exactly. And this kind of leads to the next point. We've talked a lot about, so this may be controversial, but since prevention is always better than treatment, as pediatric gastroenterologists, pediatricians, and others who care about children, are there takeaways from what you have learned in your work on CDED that should be applied more broadly, 
as far as advocacy or protective policies when it comes to food in general? Great, great question. And, and you know, I, I think that I agree prevention is really where we have to aim with diet because lifestyle impacts on many intestinal diseases, especially IBD, are, are supported by quite a bit of research. And it's very common that I'll have a parent come in and say, you just diagnosed my 12-year-old with Crohn's disease, but I have a six-year-old and a four-year-old at home and I'm pregnant. What can I do differently to prevent them from getting this condition? And 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 certainly we, we know that the predisposition starts very early on. So, you know, even in uterus and, and then when in utero and then when, you know, pregnancy, et cetera, early diet, breastfeeding is one of the strongest approaches that we can have to reduce the risk of, of uh, developing specifically Crohn's disease in a dose related factor effect, right? So that that's very important. However, I can't say, because there's no science, that, that we know that adhering to specific diet right now will reduce your risk of getting a condition. These are all associations. But still, you know, I think with the data that we have, and given that there are other health benefits to some of the common recommendations that I give, I do preach about the importance of being aware, thinking about it, understanding the principles of what a healthy diet is. But at the same time, it's very important for me to, to make sure that this does not become a nightmare and something that the child or the family hates. And I think for a lot of people, you know, who end up being obsessed with foods, and, and we see this in our clinics, not necessarily in IBD, but in other settings, they are suffering because of food, because of where they're allowed to eat, they're supposed to eat, they're not supposed to eat. So we try and avoid that. We want them to find happiness in food, but at the same time, you know, like the, the obvious culprits are, are things that we should try and reduce. And that's what I've been practicing. We talked about this earlier. That's what I'm practicing in my own life, too. But I wouldn't say that CDD is recommended for the general public or for people who feel that they are at high risk. Okay. So what I'm hearing is empowering families to make good choices with foods and, and look for uh, if they're to the greatest extent possible, sort of real foods, real whole foods, yeah. um, as much as possible and learn, yeah. learn to prepare those themselves. And if you can recognize what's in the plate or even better, if you've put it yourself in the plate, you've made the food. Another point that, you know, I try and make is because we're, we are treating children is getting the children engaged and involved in preparing the food, making decisions about food is something that I find to be very rewarding. And it also, you know, they, they have to get on board because, you know, you just made this wonderful salad. Maybe they didn't make a salad, whatever it is that they did make, then, you know, you're going to love it and you're going to eat it. And, and, and I, for some kids that really does work, it gives them also a strength that, you know, they can do something to improve their health, which, which empowerment I think is, especially with younger kids is a very powerful tool. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and if they can participate in cleaning up the kitchen afterwards, that's also <laughs> good, good luck. <laughs> so we obviously could spend all day, Jen and I uh, definitely could spend all day talking about food and, uh, and the impact it has on our lives. Uh, but if we could shift gears just a tiny bit and, and talk about your career uh, in pediatric GI and research, looking back on your career, what's been the most valuable advice that you've received and, and what advice would you have for our listeners? Oh, that's a great question. So, I mean, my career, I never expected to be, I, I mean, I 
didn't say this at the beginning. I'm I'm a physician scientist in the states is the term that you use or a clinician scientist here. I I'm very lucky that I and I this I did say that I get to do what I enjoy and that's a lot of science. But I I love the clinical work that I do and and I I did find a way to combine the two. Um, so I'll start with the second part and that's find something that will give you that happiness. You know, find a career path that. Like, I, I won't lie, there are days that I'm frustrated and angry and upset and sad and like anyone else. But I think, you know, finding a way to build on on the things that do make you happy is the best advice. The advice that I got from my PhD supervisor, Phil Sherman, um, and this relates more to kind of surviving as a academic and a scientist, is that no one cares about the denominator, so what does that mean? It's not how many grants you submitted or how many papers you submitted, because you can submit a grant a hundred times and get it only once. That's going to be the one that counts. So really finding a way to, you know, put behind you what didn't work and wasn't successful and focus on getting to that success points. Um, because I've been through years where nothing seemed to work. And then suddenly, you know, you get a few grants or you get a few papers published and those are the ones you need to remember. Positive thinking. <laughs> I like it. And, As and I just resubmitted a manuscript again. That's yeah. very good <laughs> advice. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck. <laughs> so, as we're finishing, do you have any final words for our listeners? Well, first of all, this is a fantastic way to communicate, talk about science, talk about clinical care. And, and I've, I've really really enjoyed this and and I've listened to some of the podcasts and I just want to listen to more and more now. Uh, I think, you know, like looking, uh, reflecting on my career and the way things developed for me, be prepared for the unexpected, you know, look for, for different side roads that you never imagined. I never thought I was going to be involved in lab research or anything like that. And when I did, I became interested in microbes. I wasn't interested in diet at all 10 years ago. Like, you know, I used it in my patients, but Life is full of surprises. You just have to keep your eyes open and, and find them and try and enjoy them. I think, I think that's a, a great note to end on. I uh, love that. So, Eitan, thank you again for joining us on Sounds today. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Jason. And uh, talk to you later. <laughs> you guys will definitely be talking later. <laughs> yes, neighbors. We will. <laughs> yes, we will. We will. <laughs> What a cool episode, Jason. I always love talking about nutrition and the chance to talk about um, just how a change in diet could have a significant and meaningful impact on our kids dealing with Crohn's disease. It's, it's just so amazing. And it was it was such a great conversation with with Eitan, you know, again, friend and colleague. We talk to him all the time here, um, but great to have him on the show. I know. I'd love to meet him in person one day. For sure, for sure. Naspigan 2023. Naspigan 2023. <laughs> Mark your calendar. <laughs> if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and you want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did 
some stuff for us. One, tell somebody else about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. Uh, you can also get there through www.naspigan.org. And the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naspigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and the guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody. Bye. Perfect. Perfect.